I, I don't think we will in, be inducing anyone to misbehave by having a rescue method at their disposal. Um, so, Mr. Chairman, I just want to get that out of the way. I do think the Food and Drug Administration needs to work on this. I think this was one of the things that I mean, you referenced in your opening statement. The tragedies that occur happen in my suburban areas as well. The tragedies that occur when we lose a young person through what presumably is an unintentional opiate overdose. Welcome back to Outside Council, and thanks for tuning in to the second part of my interview with Chris McGreal author of the book, American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. My discussion with Chris continues today with a deep dive into his experience on the front lines of the opioid epidemic. In episodes two and three of our first season of Outside Council, I interviewed a former sales representative, now whistleblower uh, from Purdue Pharma, named Carol Panera, who spoke candidly and beautifully about her experiences in that job for five years. And one of the things that she talked about uh, that you touched on earlier was how little training sales representatives actually had in any of the relevant subject matter for promoting opioids to doctors, medicine, pharmacology, addiction risk. Did you find that shocking? Yes, if the doctors have very little training and understanding and they're listening to salespeople who have very little training and understanding, then you have to ask yourself, where does all this information begin? And it doesn't begin in any sense with the medical profession. It begins in the marketing department of the drug industry. And the marketing department is focused on one thing, selling as many pills as possible. And so you don't see them looking and weighing up the uh, medical benefits because they don't have the ability to do that. What they're looking for is any kind of information, any kind of studies, anything that will justify prescribing more pills. And that's what they do. They go out and find essentially very weak evidence that in some cases they outright misinterpret and it gets pushed to their salespeople who push it to the doctors as evidence that these drugs are effective, that they're safe, that they're necessary. It's all begun with the marketing department, has nothing to do with uh, the medical profession at all. Consider that, as Carol Panera made clear, as have many sales representative of opioid manufacturers that I have uh, deposed, taken their sworn statements in litigation. Sales representatives were paid on a commission and bonus schedule directly tied to how many opioids they sell, and in higher dosages versus lower dosages. In other words, the more opioids in the higher dosages that they persuaded doctors to prescribe to patients, the more money they made. And many of them were hard charging 20 somethings just out of college. That's who many of these sales representatives were with no medical training, no expertise in any relevant scientific subject matter. Is that unique to America? Certainly it's unique to the extent of its influence on the medical profession. I mean, in public health services elsewhere, which drugs get used and how are on the whole decided by the public health authorities. So for instance, in the British National Health Service, there's a committee called NICE, it buys the pills, it decides you know, which pills will be used for what. Uh, now doctors um, are free to prescribe and they, 
they undoubtedly do um, meet uh, uh, sales reps. But the fact is, the whole process is so much more controlled. And if you look at, for instance, the prescribing of opioids, there are very strict guidelines set by the administration of the National Health Service about what doctors can and can't do, what they can be used for. And so the role of the salesperson, the drug industry salesperson, is far less influential, not only over the individual doctor, but over the whole kind of public health uh, sector uh, administration. I mean, one of the things you see in, in what happened in America is that they didn't just, the drug industry didn't just influence the individual doctors. They actually had enormous power over the whole medical, uh, the whole hospital system through, um, there is, a, <laughs> essentially in the United States, there's a, a system that requires individual hospitals, even privately owned uh, hospitals or corporate hospitals, they have to adhere to certain federal standards in order to receive federal money, particularly for Medicare and Medicaid, things like that. One of those standards is uh, to meet certain patient satisfaction levels, and that is guided through patient satisfaction surveys. And those patient satisfaction surveys on things like opioids could determine whether a hospital did or didn't get federal money. That was a direct consequence of the way that the, the drug industry operated. You're, of course, talking about the Joint Commission. And didn't Purdue Pharma actually pay for and write the Joint Commission's guidelines on how to treat pain for the year 2000? What you see the Joint Commission do is it buys into something that is created ostensibly by independent medical bodies, but in fact, ostensibly independent groups that are really funded by the drug industry. The American Pain Society was at the forefront of this, and it was pushing the idea of pain as the fifth vital sign, that whenever you went to hospital, in the same way that your, your blood pressure and your heart rate are measured, you should be measured for your pain. But of course, there's no way to measure individual pain. You, the only thing you can do is ask the patient how much pain they think they're in. But the Joint Commission, which has an effective oversight of hospitals, um, bought into this idea under pressure from the American Pain Society, which was, of course, being funded by the drug industry. And it bought into the idea of uh, pain is the fifth vital sign and essentially required it be followed. Every patient be asked in every hospital in the country in order to essentially have the license to operate. And one of the, th the things you then see is that step forward, Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, they offer to write the book on how doctors are to be trained in this, how they are to conduct themselves and treat patients. And written into this book, are two key ideas that are hugely influential. One is that, that these drugs are, are super safe, that there's no addiction risks at all, which is just untrue. But any doctor who raises questions is, is deemed to be opioid phobic, as though that this is some kind of, something's wrong with the doctor for daring to ask questions. And the second thing is, is that these books completely ignore what we were discussing about earlier, which is the causes of the pain. And this training pushes that opioids are the default treatment for pain and the be all and end all really of dealing with pain. And they downplay risks of addiction. And although doctors are encouraged to look out for addiction, 
really there's not a great emphasis on how they do that and they are certainly not given the time to be able to properly do that and the much greater emphasis is on the patient and the patient satisfaction surveys and keeping everybody happy and so that has a huge influence on how the hospitals conduct themselves and how the hospitals require their doctors to conduct themselves. And really, that push just comes out of the drug industry. At that point, essentially taken over hospitals and their treatment of pain. In your book, one of the statistics that you note is that as recently as 2017, the department at FDA responsible for approving opioid painkillers received 75% of its income from drug makers. What influence do you believe that kind of monetary support and dependence has on a regulatory agency that is supposed to be protecting the public? Yeah, it's a good question. And I've asked people inside the FDA about this. And it, it was interesting to me that the FDA, when I approached them, when I was writing the book, refused to give me an interview, essentially wouldn't talk to me. And that had been the experience of other reporters on this. You would think that they would feel the need to at least address the questions that are being asked, but they simply refused to. Um, they didn't respond to questions. They didn't respond to requests for interviews. And that that had been consistent of the FDA throughout. But you, you can trace back this dependence on this industry's money back to the 80s. Until the 80s, essentially the early 80s, the industry paid its taxes and the government funded the FDA and the two were separate. You start to see after the Reagan era and, and pushed by Clinton as well, Bill Clinton when he's president, you start to see the idea that the drug industry is going to pay for services from the FDA. And over time, that gets to be a bigger and bigger proportion of the FDA's income. And the FDA will, will tell you, oh, it doesn't influence us. But the reality is that it has two effects. One is they're dealing with the drug industry debt face to face. And the drug industry is saying to them, well, we're paying for this. Come on, do what you're supposed to do. But more importantly, the drug industry would go to Congress, members of Congress, and say, why are we paying all this money when the FDA is holding things up? Why are we paying all this money when the FDA is so slow? We need to speed this process up. Don't you understand how much money is involved? It opened the door to political pressure, but it also opened the door to a kind of working relationship, which some had characterized to me as the FDA starts to see the drug industry not as being the regulated, but as the client, as the customer, and it's serving the drug industry. And I think you can see some of that in the most recent revelations about the consultant's role in the FDA. They were advising both sides at the same time. Now, the FDA didn't know that McKinsey was uh, advising Purdue Pharma exactly the same time that it's advising the FDA, but it's interesting nonetheless that the FDA should feel the need to go to McKinsey and seek out ways effectively to keep the drug industry happy through the management consultants. And you see it in other ways too. One of the things I report in my book is about meetings that the FDA has where the drug industry pays to be at the meetings. They're paying intermediaries $40,000 a time to be at the meetings. And these meetings are essentially to establish the regulatory framework for opioids, amongst other things. And whilst we 
the FDA would say, well, of course, we have to meet the drug industry. The circumstances, the money involved, the fact that there were committees formed where you had senior FDA people on it that were being paid to be there and the FDA is doing the paying shows a, a kind of a closeness of relationship that you would not expect from a regulatory body and a regulated industry in this way. Over time, over the course of the opioid epidemic at long last, more legislators, people in law enforcement, and regulatory agencies, at least acknowledged an understanding that the root cause of the opioid epidemic is the disease of addiction rather than the bad seed, open quote, abusers, close quote. And you recite in your book an interview with the former Center for Disease Control, Tom Frieden, who made very clear to you, at least as you reported it, this isn't an evolution of erudition and progressive thinking. It's just that the opioid epidemic, unlike the crack epidemic of the 1980s, affects white people as much as it does people of color. I found that jarring. What conclusions did you draw about that assessment? And what do you make of it? Well, I would go further and say it wasn't just it was white people, because when it was white people in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and Maine, and they were marginalized and they were relatively poor, um, I think they were ignored too. I think it was white middle class people, white people of a, a certain standing. Once it started to filter into universities and, and kill middle class kids, when it, it started to hit communities, uh, such as, uh, you know, around Sacramento, actually quite wealthy California communities, you start to see people dying, then it's people who have a voice. And finally, they start, you know, to, to have an impact and it gets, uh, you know, noticed. You talk about Dr. Andrew Kolodny in your book, who I interviewed uh, in our first season of Outside Counsel. And with respect to him, you note, FDA officials don't like Kolodny. One described him as a complex character, but outside of the Drug Evaluation Center, there was a recognition that at least some of the Kolodny's views about the epidemic had merit. Why don't FDA officials like Dr. Kolodny, according to your reporting? I think because they find him difficult. He kept pushing. He wasn't easily uh, persuaded that it was the victim's fault. And I think he was more than willing to call out what he saw as unprofessional and immoral behavior. And he was very public about it. And, you know, he filed complaints with the FDA that they were publicly and legally obliged to address. They couldn't just brush him aside. And of course, he had a certain degree of authority. He's a doctor and a specialist, yes. And I, one of the things you see with consistently that the drug industry does with people that, particularly those who've lost family members to um, opioid overdoses is to dismiss them as unreasoned by grief, as you don't, you know, it's very sad what's happened and we should sympathize with them, but you really don't have to listen to these people because, you know, whoever they, it was that they lost was a drug addict. Harder to do that with Kolodny. He was better informed than, than they would have liked. I read your book because I am passionate about learning everything I can about the opioid epidemic and doing what I can to communicate about it, bring about harm reduction, and hold drug companies accountable for their role so that they will fund the opioid harm reduction programs uh, that work. 
Why should others who are not quite as inside baseball as I am about this read your book? I think because it will tell them something about the way things really work, to be honest. I think it's an insight into who has influence over perhaps the most important thing in your life, which is your health. Who is really making the medical decisions? We're often told, you know, nobody should become between a patient and their doctor. But one thing that was quite clear to me in reporting this book is there's a lot of people between a patient and the doctor, from the insurance company, the hospitals, the drug industry, they're all making decisions. The patient doesn't necessarily see them, but the, they're all making decisions about that patient's health and what's good for them. And the doctor often has far less ability to make an independent decision than the patient might imagine. But I think it goes to something bigger, really, which is, you know, the influence of corporate money in how things are run. And obviously, the medical profession has been enormously influenced by that in ways that, to my mind, are undemocratic. I also would say the other, the other reason to read the book is that the human tales of the people that were good enough to speak to me about their experiences of this, both people in West Virginia who've lived through the epidemic, including some people who lost all their family members, to the doctors who fought it, were brave enough to stand up and fight it, to some people inside the FDA who had the courage to talk to me off the record. Their, their tales are, are truly sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes very courageous. And I think that's one thing you know I, I made a point of bringing out in the book is that there have been some very courageous people out there who've fought this all the way at some cost to themselves. I've had the same experience here on Outside Council, where I've had the privilege of interviewing Krista Covalier, who lost her son to an opioid epidemic and is in recovery herself. Trish Cole, who after losing her son to an opioid overdose, uh, became a paramedic. And now with her husband, who's also a paramedic, rides around in ambulances, reversing opioid overdoses with Narcan when they get there in time and develops relationships with these people and their loved ones. And the point of this show more than any other is to bring those people forward as shining examples of what can be done and is being done if we're willing to look at it and we're willing to face it and we're willing to confront it. And you're one of those people. And I, I can't thank you enough, both for writing the book uh, and for your candor. You are a delight to have on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me on. If it's okay by you, I want to just ask you a couple more questions. You talk about in your book, there are no shortage of lessons to be learned about what happens when commercial interests wield influence over medical policy. But the epidemic should also cause the country's leaders to reflect on who fell victim and why. Who else do you want to listen to this podcast and read your book about who fell victim and why? Well, I, I, I would like, perhaps, it's striking to me, I live in New York now. When I was doing my tour for this book, promoting it when it first came out, it was interesting where people turned out. And the bookshops in West Virginia in Kentucky and in Oklahoma, they were full. When I did it in New York, not a lot of people turned out. And I think that those places that haven't been as badly blighted by it, by the opioid epidemic, or at least certainly 
not by the original prescription pill epidemic, might learn something from looking at what happened to other parts of this country. When President Trump was elected, there was a rush to try and understand what was going on in other bits of America by people in places like New York and Washington, D.C. And I think this is an important part of that, if you want to understand why those parts of the country felt so abandoned in many ways, like nobody represented them. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that, you know, West Virginia is a good example. I've just been there. The suspicion of authority and of the establishment extends to corporations. These are Republican voters who you might think would would be big fans of big business and corporations, but they're not. And part of that is because of the opioid epidemic. They see corporate interests as also working against them, not just the government and the and the political establishment. And that, that's a result of the, the opioid epidemic. And so I'd, I would suggest people who don't live that, don't understand it, might gain some insights as well. Watch any television show, count the number of prescription drug ads, and there's no doubt in your mind, we haven't changed pill culture one whit as a result of the opioid epidemic, have we? No, and it's interesting that, you know, the United States is one of only two countries in the world that permit that prescription drug advertising. The other one, strangely, and for reasons I'm not clear about, is New Zealand, but no other country allows prescription drugs to be pushed in that way because they don't think, uh, well, it creates exactly what it's intended to create, which is people sit around at home and say, yeah, there's something wrong with my knee. It feels a bit twitchy. I'm going to go and ask my doctor for that drug. And doctors, um, in many cases, feel obliged to follow through and prescribe. Um, And it creates demand for drugs that isn't necessary. Well, on this show, you are going to get a full recommendation and endorsement. Every single listener, read American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. It is worth every word and every minute. And you are too, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you to my guest, Chris McGreal. And thank you for tuning in. And next week, I'm sitting down with Brian, a jack of many trades who has lived a colorful life for over a decade. Brian suffered from opioid addiction, first to OxyContin and then to heroin. Brian has been sober for the last several years and is running for sheriff in Travis County, Texas. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon.